reminded me of an old story, and it's kind of a joke in a way. I suppose probably really happened. And uh, about the preacher, you've heard it, I'm sure. The preacher said, how many of you want to go to heaven? And uh, raise your hand. Well, everybody in the church raised their hands. There one fellow on about the fifth row, and he said, sir, don't you want to go to heaven? He said, sure, I want to go to heaven. I want to go to heaven when I die, but I, I thought you were taking up a load this morning. So... <laughs> I'm, uh, heaven's my home, but I'm not homesick yet, but I want to be going there. Uh, some folks have wondered what uh, Bright Sunday is. I want to tell you a little about it because that's the basis of uh, what I want to talk about this morning. It didn't begin with Trinity Baptist Church. It began way, way back. It really began in the first century, about the second century as well, and really took off then uh, for the first uh, two or three hundred years. And then it went into deep freeze for about 700 years until the 12th or 13th century. And there was an explosion again of life and light emerging from the dark ages. But in both the Catholic and the Orthodox, the Orthodox, as you know, are Roman are Catholic in their theology, but they do not have allegiance to the Pope. They have allegiance to Constantinople. The same doctrine, all with the exception of the role of the Pope. So when you in, uh, in Eastern Europe right now, in, in Serbia, for example, they're Eastern Orthodox. Uh, they're Greek Orthodox, they're Russian Orthodox. Uh, and both in the Catholic and in the Orthodox and in the Protestant tradition, uh, early on in Christianity, they celebrated Easter Monday. Now, how many of you have seen a calendar which has, on the Monday following Easter, has on there Easter Monday? It was a time, many of you raise your hand, it's a time of, of it was then, way back, uh, a time of great celebration. And it was traditionally a time of joy and of laughter. It was a time when they told jokes, when they played pranks on one another, when they dressed up in loud, uh, bright clothing and uh, had parties and celebrations because the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ didn't end on Sunday night. It went on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, went all the way through the week. In fact, that day was not only called Bright Monday, it was often called Bright Monday. It was called White Monday because suddenly the darkness of the grave had been dispelled. It was called Emmaus Day because of the two on the road to Emmaus who had conversation with the Lord following uh, his resurrection. And then out of that came Bright Sunday. And they came to see that, uh, that Christ was not only the bright hope of their lives, but the bright hope of their dark world. Now, we live in a very dark world. You don't have to watch the news to see that. We live in a very dark world. The background of this message is black, darkness, death. And it is the light of the world, Jesus Christ, who is the only one who has the light, the laser light of God that can penetrate any darkness, can penetrate that wall, the laser light of God that can make a difference in the world. Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone can bring light out of darkness. He did it in creation, in Genesis, and he has done it in recreation in Jesus Christ and created a whole new light and a whole new life. Then, for example... Some of the early Christian writers, Augustine in the second century, uh, Gregory of Nyssa, and John Chrysostom called Golden Throat, who was the pastor, priest, and preacher of the great church in Constantinople, who was because, ultimately because of his preaching and his proclamation of the gospel, 
uh, was banished. But their whole message was a message of brightness and of light and of love. John Chrysostom, golden throat as he was called, preached, and I, I quote him, God played a practical joke on the devil by raising Jesus from the dead. God himself played a joke on the devil by raising Jesus Christ from the dead. What is a joke? A joke is something that turns the tables on the expected. You expect one thing and suddenly there's a punchline and it's the unexpected and it kind of catches us off guard and we laugh at that. That's what a joke is. The, it, it's something unreasonable. And if there is anything that is unreasonable... It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When men die, they stay dead. Millions upon millions upon millions die and stay dead. One man died and came to life on the third day, and he therefore is the source of light and life for all of us and those of us who believe in him, he says, will never die. So it is an appropriate celebration that we're involved in. St. Francis of Assisi, now you get down to about the 12th or 13th century, and you begin to see a new message emerging out of the, out of the darkness of the last 700 years from John Chrysostom uh, to St. Francis. And St. Francis says, leave sadness to the devil. He has a reason to be sad. Martin Luther said, God not a, is not a God of sadness. The devil is. Christ is a God of joy. And John Wesley said, sour godliness is the devil's religion. Sour godliness is the devil's religion. God does not call his people to be sour. We're to be fresh, light, and life because of what he did a week ago today. So every Sunday ought to be bright because every Sunday is the Lord's day. This is not the Sabbath. This is not the Sabbath. I know it's hard to get that into some people's mind. This is not the Sabbath day. Saturday was the Sabbath. Friday night at six o'clock or sundown until Saturday night at sundown was the Sabbath. Make note of the fact Jesus was in the grave on the Sabbath because the old law was dead. It had no power. And he rose on the first day of the week. You know, people talk about the weekend. They include Sunday as part of the weekend. The weekend ended last night at midnight. This is not the end of the week. This is not the weekend. This is the first day. The first day of the week. And the Christians early on... At first, they worshiped on both days. You remember Peter and John were going up to the temple to pray. They were going up there on the Sabbath. But more and more, they came to see that the old law was impotent, that it was powerless to change life. And so they started worshiping and celebrating on the Lord's day. So this is the Lord's day. It is not the Sabbath with all of those old negative, negative resolutions and regulations. It is the Lord's day. It's the new day. It is the bright day. It is the sunshine day. The sun day. S-O-N day. That has come to give us light and life through all of the darkness 
of the world that surrounds us and that sometimes engulfs us. So God calls us in a fresh way today, calls us to re-engage ourselves with him and let him re-engage himself with us. And uh, I want to use a passage of scripture from Psalm 100. In fact, all of Psalm 100. It's very short, only five verses long. The Bible there in the book rack in front of you is on page 593. (coughs) Excuse me. Page 593. Let me read it to you. It begins with with a shout. Just like this service did. It says, shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name for the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Come before him. Come before him. God calls us constantly to come to him. He is the perennial inviter to life. If you read through the Bible, 642 times you will read God saying, come to me, come to me, come to me, come to me. 642 times times come to me I think what what he really is saying there is is more than an invitation to us from a distance it's really an invitation for us to answer the door that he comes to knock on the door and he wants us to open the door and ask him to come in didn't Jesus say behold I stand at the door and knock if any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. I'm sure all of you have seen copies of Holman Hunt's famous painting, The Light of the World. There are two originals of it. He painted two duplicates. One is at a Baptist college in Bristol, England. The other is in St. Paul's Cathedral in London. <clears throat> I have seen the one in St. Paul's. It's late in the day. You can tell by the foliage. It is getting dark. And Jesus is standing with a light in his hand, a lantern, and he is knocking on the door. And you've heard it a thousand times. There is no latch on the outside of the door. And there is no latch on the outside of your heart. Jesus is not going to knock it down. He's not going to crash the party. He calls upon us. He calls upon us. Do you remember people used to say, I'm going to go calling on somebody? I'm going to go call on a person. That means I'm going to go to their house. I'm going to go over and call upon them. Well, that's exactly what Jesus Christ does. He calls upon us. And what he wants us to do, he having taken the initiative, wants us to open the door and let him come in. Maybe we all want to do that today in a fresh way. Just say, Lord, I'm going to open the door. Just fling it as wide as it will go on. Those old rusty hinges, open the door and come in and fill my life. Reach all the way back into the dark corners 
of my life. Reach all the way back into those Fibber McGee closets that I had back there where I put so much stuff that I don't want anybody to see. Come in and clean out all of that stuff and take away all of the doubt and the darkness that's in my life. He calls upon us. How does he want us to come? Well, he tells us. Shout for joy. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. He wants us to come shouting with joy. He wants us to come filled with gladness. He wants us to come with thanksgiving. He wants us to come with praise. He wants us to come and enjoy him. I talked last Sunday, as you, some of you will remember if you were here, on Jesus' appearances and the time that he appeared to the 500 at one time. 500, and I use my imagination. I'm sure probably you did as well. Who was in that crowd? Who do you think was in that crowd? Who do you picture was in that crowd? 500 people at one time. I don't know how many people we have in, in here right now. We have more than 500, I suppose. But uh, now, now suppose that there were just 500 of us, and we were back there with that crowd, or you and I were part of that 500 a long time ago. And here, the most important person in our life has been crucified. He's been put in the grave. An ignominious and excruciating death. And all of their hopes were dashed. As they said on the road to Emmaus, we trusted it had been he who would redeem Israel. We really believed that this man was going to save us. We, we left everything to follow him. We went out on a limb for him. We believed in him. And he's dead. We'll never see him again. And then suddenly, he walks through that door. Now, if he walked through that door, we thinking he was in a grave, dead, buried out there in a cemetery. If he walked through that door, what would we do? Would we give him a little polite, nice going? Welcome back. We'd explode to our feet with a shout of joy. We'd be overwhelmed with the realization that he's not dead, that he is alive, and that all that I, faith that I placed in him was not wasted. All of the love I have given to him was not in vain. He's alive, he's alive, he's alive, he's alive. They shout for joy. But I suppose we're too sophisticated now, are we? We've learned better. I believe Jesus wants to melt some of the ice of our indifference and warm our hearts with his resurrected presence and help us praise him. Praise him. Shout for joy for what he has done in our lives. What he wants to do in our lives. You know, there are a lot of... I don't, I don't have a better term for it than Good Friday Christians. They're Good Friday Christians. They know about the crucifixion. And there's a lot of sadness associated with that, rightfully so. But they never get to the tomb. They keep going back to the cross, back to the cross, back to the cross. 
the little boy was in a service with his parents. It was one of those Good Friday services, and everybody was had their head bowed, and some people were crying, and they were weeping, and praying out loud, and, and a procession occurred, and they were all walking with their heads down and, and praying. A kind of chant was going on, and the little guy turned to his mother, and he said, why are they talking to their shoelaces? <laughs> Lift up your voice. He's not on a cross. Stop talking to your shoelaces. Stop singing to your shoelaces. He is alive. And we celebrate it, not on Bright Sunday alone, not on Easter Sunday alone, but every day is a new day for us when Jesus Christ is alive in our lives. I'm concerned about America, as I'm confident you are as well. I'm concerned about the church in America because so many facets of it are engaged in negativism, judgmentalism, and anger, disputations of all kinds. I think one reason is because we've lost our sense of enthusiasm. You know, that's a, that's a God word, enthusiasm. Theos is the Greek word, Greek name for God. Or the, that's, theos means God in Greek. In theosism means to be in Godism, for God to be in people. They have enthusiasm in theosism. General James Van Fleet was once asked, what is the one quality you would rather your son have than any other? And his answer was enthusiasm. It's enthusiastic football teams that win games. Look at the final four. Upset. An incredible upset. Enthusiasm. It will override lack of ability in many instances. Enthusiasm. A will to do it. I'm concerned about the church in America. I think, and I, 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 I hope you'll understand this, I think we need to be thinking about ways in which we can evangelize the baptized. A lot of people who've been baptized in a Baptist church or somewhere else, maybe they're christened and they're fine people, and they, I don't question the fact that they're Christians, I don't doubt that at all, but I do believe that in the American church today, there is a kind of deadness in many instances where we are afraid to let the joy of the Lord permeate our lives and express itself through our worship and through our ministry to the world. Abraham Lincoln said, more people, more flies are attracted by honey than by vinegar. And the same thing is true with the proclamation of the gospel. This may startle you to, do, to realize, as it startled me. Do you know that the United States is the fifth uh, nation in the world in terms of unchurched and unsaved people? China, Russia, Brazil, and the Muslim world. Number five, the United States of America. Do you realize that there are 22,000 missionaries that have come to America to evangelize America and they have come from Africa and from South Korea and from Indonesia. They are people on what we think are mission fields who see America as the fifth neediest mission field in the world and we're on it. Why don't we do more about it? The need is here. The darkness is here. The lost are here. Not just somewhere over, a, over an ocean. They're across the street. 
They work with us. They eat with us. We're on a mission field. God, help us as a church, as individuals, and then collectively as a church to see it. Well, why does God want us? Why does he want us? You know why he wants us. A.L. told us that when he shared that wonderful testimony with us a moment ago. Look at that third verse. Why does he want us? We know that the Lord is God, that it is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. He loves us. He loves you. You say, well, Buckner, I'm not very unlovable. I make a difference. He loves you. You can't keep him from loving you. If you've not read Philip Keller's wonderful book, A Shepherd Looks at the 23rd Psalm, let me recommend it. I've devoured it. In fact, I've just digested so much of it, I can't tell what I'm thinking and what I learned from him. But uh, in, that, in that marvelous book, he talks about the Holy Land Shepherd's intimacy with his sheep. And he said, a, you could take a Holy Land Shepherd and you could put a blindfold on him and let the sheep come one by one and just let him feel of their face and he'd know the name of that sheep. Now, who is our good shepherd? Our good shepherd is Jesus Christ. And he can just reach out. He knows everything about us. He knows whether we wandered or not. He knows whether we have drifted or not. He knows whether we have rebelled or not. Does make any difference? He reaches out for us. He loves us. He loves you. Make a difference. You may not love yourself, but he loves you just as you are. Just as you are. We don't have to try to put on any airs. Do you remember that phrase? That was, a, that was, a, that was one of my grandmother's phrases, talking about a person putting on airs. Uh, how many of you are familiar with that term? Well, a number of you are. It's sort of, you know, trying to appear something external that we are not, uh, we're not really, that's not really us. <laughs> this being a day in which we tell funny stories, uh, although I like to tell them all the time, but I want to, a number of years ago, I, I baptized a man up here in this baptistry. It's about 25 or 30 years ago. It was before I started having people come up and stand around the baptistry. I'd be up there on Sunday night and the people would be out here. So it's a pretty long way and you, you can't see real well. You can barely see the heads of the person when you're baptizing them. But I, you know, we always talk to them beforehand and explain baptism and its meaning and so on and so forth. And I goes in, I was baptizing one right after the other. And then this man came in and I hadn't noticed, I hadn't paid any attention. And it wouldn't have made any difference to me if I had noticed, but I baptized him. We, I, you know, we don't, we don't, uh, it's not a water polo game. You know, we go back slowly and, and uh, it's not like people when they grab you in the swimming pool when you were a kid, you know, and dunk you backwards. Uh, we don't do that. Go back slowly, you know, and, and I went back with him and then I brought him up out of the water. And you know what happened? His hair floated off on the top of the water. <laughs> it looked like a dead squirrel. Just... And I reached out and grabbed it and slapped it on his head and, and I didn't get it on there straight it was sort of whomper jawed it was hanging down over his eye and his ear and, and he went out and, I, and, the, and the men that were helping up there they saw it you know and they were trying, not, they were trying to keep a straight face uh, and I had to try to you know 
look pious up there in spite of that and uh, not, and not laugh. I, I just wondered, why didn't he use Elmer's glue or something to keep that hair from floating off out there? Well, you know, the, the point of that story, point of that story is that there's, there's really nothing we can do. There's nothing we can do externally, religiously, church-wise. There's nothing we can do that can, that can in any way make us acceptable to God because we're all sinners. We're all bald-headed men. We're all people who endeavor, to, and I believe in trying to look as good as you can, not out of vanity, but because other people have to look at us. And every old barn looks a little better with some paint on it. So I don't think we ought to, that we ought to disregard our appearance. But I'm talking about our spiritual appearance. There's just no way that we can do something that will in some way make us acceptable to God. And isn't it interesting, when we are immersed in Him, when we are surrounded by His love, all of the superfluous and the unreal and the artificial floats away and the real person emerges. Baptism into Christ is what the scripture says. Immersed in his love and all of our old stuff floats away. You know, Sam Houston became a Christian late in his life. He was quite a rounder, fighter, lived with the Indians, had a mysterious relationship in Tennessee where he was governor and never told the, the reasons for his, uh, the dissolution of his marriage. Came to Texas, you know about him, Texas hero, Senator General Sam Houston. He was living in Independence, Texas, Baylor University was established there. Small school, started with one teacher and 24 students. Sam Houston lived there. And he allowed the Baylor students to use his library. And he even helped support that struggling new university over there in Independence. Rufus Burleson, a man who was later president of Baylor University, was preaching at the First Baptist Church in Independence. And one Sunday morning, he'd been coming for a long time, but one Sunday morning, six foot six, Sam Houston walked down the aisle and said, Brother Burleson, I've accepted Jesus as my personal Savior, and I want to be baptized. He was baptized that afternoon. And when Rufus Burleson brought him up out of the water, they started walking back up on the bank. Rufus Burleson said, General, all of your sins are washed away. And Sam Houston replied, God have mercy on the fishes. <laughs> well, all of our toupees, all of our sins, and all of that stuff is washed away because he loves us and he wants us. And what are we to do? What, what does he want us to do? He tells us in the fourth verse, enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise, give thanks to him and praise his name. Give thanks, give thanks. Thank God today for what he's done for us. 
Thank the Lord for what he's done. We're all here because he's brought us through some stuff, hasn't he? We're all here with some scars. But he's brought us through. He never fails. Never, never fails. So thank him. Just thank him. And I think we ought to take more time to thank one another. We so often take it for granted. Well, that, that person knows that I love them and appreciate them and thank them. Say it. When all else fails, say it. Just say it. I read about a father who was in a retirement home, a rest home, limited, could not get out on his own. And his two grown children would come to see him seldom. And one day he was really discouraged and they both came. It may have been a special occasion like a birthday or Father's Day or something. And when I read this, it just kind of stabbed me in my spirit. He, he asked his two children, he said, when I die, will you come to my funeral? They said, well, certainly, Dan, surely we'll come to your funeral. He said, I'd much rather you come see me while I'm still alive every now and then. Don't wait to send flowers at a funeral. Send them now in words, in deeds, in letters, in cards. Give thanks to God. Shakespeare said how sharper than a serpent's tooth it is to have a thankless child. I believe God would say that. Thank him for what he's done. And the foundation for all of this is the fifth and last verse. For the Lord is good. The Lord is good. He is good. And his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Every day is a bright day with the light of the world. Bright Monday tomorrow, then bright Tuesday, then bright Wednesday, bright Thursday, bright Friday, bright Saturday, bright Sunday, over and over again. The light of the world has come to be a perennial presence in our lives. Give thanks to God. He is good and his love for you endures forever. Who wouldn't want to love and follow a Lord like that? Would you like to be a follower of Jesus? That's what it means to be a Christian. It doesn't mean that you eat something or drink something or sign something or do something or don't do something. The church is so complicated what it means all you have to do to be a Christian is what they did in the first century they just said okay I'll follow you okay I'll do it that's what it means to be a Christian it just means to say I'm a follower of Jesus and frankly I'm not sure but whether we ought not to start describing ourselves that way because the word Christian has been so misinterpreted.
so compromised, so politicized. You know, in Eastern Europe in those days when some of us were there during communism, Christians there never referred to themselves as Christians because the term had become politicized. The Christian Democratic Party, for example, in Germany. They call themselves believers. Believers. I'm a believer. I'm second a Baptist. I'm first a believer. I'm first a follower of Jesus. Secondly, I do it through the Baptist fellowship. What we're inviting you to do is to just be a follower of Jesus. And if you feel more at home in another church than this one, we'll help you do that. But neither one of them are going to make you a Christian. They'll just be a way for you to express your faith. What it means to be a Christian is to do what I'm asking you to do right now. is to say, I want to follow Jesus. To trust him as your Savior. Maybe you've never made that commitment public. Or to come be a part of this church. Say, I do want to be a part of this church. I want to be an official part of the life of this church. We'll be here to greet you. Be a follower of Jesus. Follow him today and every day. Let's stand and sing.